Matthew chapter 22. We resume our studies in Matthew and finish the chapter today. We're in the last few verses of the chapter, beginning in verse number 41 through 46. I mentioned last week that we'll go to we'll finish chapter 23 and then we'll take a break in Matthew and go elsewhere and then resume our studies in chapter 24 as we get going. We're almost near the end, but there's a whole lot. These are dense passages, very rich in, in uh, truth to us, so we want to take our time as, uh, as, as much as necessary to understand what's going on. Let's read together Matthew chapter 22, and I'll read 41 to 46 if you'll follow along. As we read these words, we remember that these are not my words, these are not a man's words, these are not Matthew's words, these are the words of God, and we receive them as such. This is the word of the Lord for Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he a son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Thanks be to God for his word to us. Let's pray and ask his blessing as we study and consider these words together. Father, we pray that you will open our minds and our hearts to receive the word. You who, you who give us the ears to hear, may we have the grace to receive what is, what is said to us. May we understand that uh, these, are, these are your words and not, not, uh, not another's. And therefore, they have great significance. They are very, very important. These are words of life. These are words that give us sustenance, that feed our souls. Father, make us hungry to know the truth. Make us... Uh, so uh, accustomed to feasting on your word that anything else is uh, just tastes bitter in our mouths. The, the, the sweetness doesn't fool us. The, the emotion, the, uh, the reasoning, whatever it may be, doesn't, doesn't distract us. If it's not your truth, we don't want it. Make us hungry. Not just for this moment, but for the, every day. Make us desiring of you and of your word. So as we come this morning, and as we consider a very small passage, a small portion of your word, we pray that you would fill us, even with just a little, to the overflowing. So that as we leave in a little while, we might say our hearts are full, and our souls are fed. We pray because of Jesus, for his sake. Amen. In July of 2009, a Nigerian novelist, Chimamanda Adichie gave a TED Talk. I wonder if you know what TED Talks are. They're like 17 minutes long, and they're just very, very uh, concise, very uh, to the point about uh, any number of subjects. And uh, Miss Adichie gave a TED Talk about the danger of telling a single story. In her talk, she explains that people's lives are composed of many overlapping stories. It's not just one narrative that explains 
a person or a culture or a country or whatever it may be. And the danger is a, of, of, of a single story is that uh, it shows someone or something only from one particular angle. And it kind of flattens them and makes them less than three-dimensional. It's just a, a one-view story. And if we tell that same story over and over again, she says that this is what they end up becoming. That's all anybody knows them is just based on that one story. And she warns that if we only listen to one story of a person or of a thing, we risk reducing them to that and really misunderstanding who they really are. For instance, I am a father. I am a husband. I am a pastor. I am a student. I'm a Christian. I am, maybe you didn't know, I am 50% uh, Lumbee Indian. Uh, and if you only tell the story of who I am from one of those angles, you really miss who I am. You don't get the whole picture. And it's the same thing for you. There's so many uh, angles to, uh, at which we can look at a person, and it's not, to, it's not for us to pick an angle and then just stick to that, but to understand the complexity of a person or of a culture or of a country or, or whatever it is that we're talking about. Well, in Matthew 22, 41, there's this, this final exchange of question and answer, and it has to do with who the Messiah is. And really what we see here as we go through it is that uh, Jesus reveals that the Pharisees are guilty of a single story, Messiah. They believe in a Messiah. They have some accurate information about the Messiah, but they don't have all of it. And they've basically only believed a single story, a one-side, a one-angle perspective on the Messiah, and it, and it really throws everything off. It's not that they believe in a false god. It's not that they believe in they're going in the wrong direction. Rather, they haven't gone far enough in that direction to really get the full picture of who the Messiah is. And so we're going to look at this this uh, short passage again, and as we look at these questions, this is the final exchange uh, that uh, in this little bit of uh, the last two chapters or so, where there have been questions given and answers. Every time before this, Jesus was asked the question, he answered the question, sometimes with his own question, but here, Jesus starts the new conversation, changes the subject, asks the question himself, and in fact, we see that he asks three questions. And so we'll look at them that way as we look at uh, as a bit of an outline. He asks three questions. And the Pharisees, uh, man, they, they take a swing at the first one and they knock that, that, that ball out of the park. And then the second two, they don't do as well. So Jesus asked them the question, beginning in verse number 42 there. He says, what do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? And then he asks, whose son is he? Now, if you are a priest or a Pharisee or really anybody who is any kind of good Jew at this time, this is one of the most basic, fundamental questions you could ask someone. In fact, you could almost say that this is almost an insulting question that Jesus asked to these guys. These are the PhDs of their day. These are the ones who have written books, and these are the ones who interpret the law. And you've asked me a question so simple as, who is the son? Who's uh, the son? Uh, Messiah is the son of who? That, that's, that's so simple. 
I'm insulted that you would even ask me that, but Jesus knows that they're going to answer this correctly, and he's building a case on them, and the Pharisees answer correctly. They say, he is the son of David. Now, let's consider this question just for a moment so we understand where they're coming from and what Jesus is, is, is leading them to. Uh, the Pharisees, when they answer the question that Jesus is the son, or that Jesus, that the Messiah is the son of David, they're referring to the Davidic covenant. You may be familiar with the Davidic covenant. I'm going to, I'll give you a few passages that you could look at later on. We won't turn to them and look at them all. But 2 Samuel chapter 7 is really the foundation of the Davidic covenant. And you may be familiar with at least part of the story. David was so passionate about serving the Lord that he wanted to build a temple for God. He looked around at his own house and said, I live in a fancy house and God lives in a tent. This is not right. I need to build him a house. And so he was go- he was all uh, intending to to build this beautiful temple for God. And and God comes to him through the prophet Nathan and says, uh, "You're not going to build me a temple. And, and you, you 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 badly misunderstand. I don't need a house. I uh, the, the temple can't contain me. The tabernacle doesn't contain me. This is all by my design." But he goes and he says, "Your son is going to build me a temple." Now on with that, he begins to lay out what is known as the Davidic covenant. And essentially, it is that a king will come through David's line and the kingdom of David will never end. It will last forever and ever. Now, if you go and read 2 Samuel 7, at the very beginning, it starts to sound like he's talking about King Solomon, David's son, who did build the temple and who did uh, fulfill some of the things that we, that we read about there. Well, if you continue your, your story of the history of Israel you know that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, split the kingdom into ten tribes and two tribes. He was a horrible king. He was a young uh, upstart and made some horrible decisions. And he split the kingdom. And from there, it was a downhill uh, race to see which one could be uh, could be judged quicker and which one would be captured by enemies and uh, basically bring the kingdom to an end. There was no king sitting on the throne of Israel. So, if, as, as the people were reading this, David understood what was going on, I think, at least to a degree. Then the people of Israel begin to follow this through. Then all of a sudden the kingdom comes to an end and, and, and people are kind of scratching their heads trying to figure out, well, what did this really mean? What did God's promise actually mean then? If God promised an everlasting kingdom, then uh, how did the, why did it end? Well, then the prophets come along and begin to uh, explain that prophecy a little bit further and help them to understand that Solomon was not the one that God was speaking about. In fact, he was speaking of a son of David that was yet to come. Now, there are a lot of places. I've chosen just a few to, to, to read to you, and then you could write them down. If you These are somewhat obscure places in the Old Testament, so your, your fingers may not be used to finding them. Uh, but and, uh, David was to be, uh, I'm sorry, the Messiah was to become this, this hope that one day God would restore the kingdom, but also set it up so that it would never end. It would never be, be defeated. It would never be conquered. And this is what they are waiting for. This is the Messiah that they are longing for. The prophet Amos, in Amos chapter 9, writes that David's booth will be repaired and rebuilt. He says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So the kingdom was, was kind of was, was in shambles and so there, there was not any thinking that, well, the kingdom is, is never going to end because the king did end. They were captives. They, there was no king of Israel at the time. And so they were trying to figure out how this would work. And prophets like Amos said, God's going to come and rebuild it. He's going to re- reestablish the throne through 
David's line. The prophet Isaiah uh, prophesied many, uh, many times of a coming Messiah. At Christmas time, we read one of his more famous prophecies in chapter 9 and verse 6. And there he, uh, is that a child from David's line will establish the throne with justice and righteousness. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We usually stop there, but the prophecy continues. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. These are just two, and they are literally uh, scattered throughout the Old Testament promises such as these. And these promises in these in this day had yet to be fulfilled, but it would come in the future. Later in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 11, he writes that, that the Messiah will be a branch that will come from the stump of Jesse or, or from the root of Jesse and to create an ideal kingdom. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 11. And then several times this Messiah king is called another David. Long after David has died, the Messiah is, is, is called David will rule again. For instance, in Jeremiah uh, chapter 30, uh, verse 8, it says that, that Israel will one day serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Well, David had been dead a long time before this, so they weren't expecting David himself, but one like David. And so all of prophecies like these, and, and again, I've given, I've read three. There are, there are many, many, many more. And all of them point to a coming Messiah, an anointed one, that will re-establish the kingdom of Israel, that will sit on the throne of David, that will rule and will never die. He, the, the kingdom will never end. His, the, the king will never die. There will be no more, no more uh, uh, leaders after him. This will be a once and for all. And so Israel is, is primed for this, and they're looking for them, for that one, and they're, they're hoping. And the, the Old Testament kind of alludes to every once in a while, but other uh, Jewish writings during this during these days, say that a lot of people would, would kind of promote themselves as I'm the Messiah, or, or someone would come along and he would have some charisma, or he would have some, some, some military might, and, and, and for a time the, the nation, or at least a portion of the nation, would look at that person and think, this is the one. When John the Baptist came on the scene, they thought, are you the one? And he says, no, I'm the one who comes before the one. And when Jesus came, he goes, that's the one. And uh, they still didn't get it. And Jesus comes along, and and sometimes people would say, "Oh, he's the one," and then other people would say, "Well, no, he can't be the one because he's he's from Nazareth, and nothing good comes out of Nazareth." And 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 we know his dad is Joseph, and and and, and he's supposed to be. Uh, he could he couldn't be. And they give all of these reasons why, but they were looking for this this Messiah, the son of David. Now I want to think through that with you. Uh, but the implications, what that means for Christ to be the son of David. For if, if the Messiah, if the Christ is going to be the son of David, what does that even mean? Well, first of all, it means that he is going to be a man. He's going to be a human. He's going to be a real person. This is not just figurative language that David is going to come and rule and, and uh, it's, going to, it's, going to, no, it's, it's, it's going to be a personal, visible, bodily person that is going to rule uh, on the throne of David. He's going to be human. Number two, that means that he is going to be descended from David's line. Part of the messianic prophecy was that whoever the Messiah was going to be had to come from David's bloodline. 
had to be a son of David. Literally, he would be a great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandson of David, but he would be in that line. He would be a son of David. Thirdly, he would be a king. This Messiah would come, he would be the king of Israel. So, it's reasons like this that a lot of people looked at Jesus kind of sideways going, he doesn't look like a king. He's, he's homeless. He's a beggar. He, he just kind of travels around. He doesn't have anything. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have, there's nothing about him that says, yes, this is the one. And then he would speak. And then they would think, oh, maybe it is the one. I mean, the way he speaks is with such authority. And, but then he, he would sometimes, he wouldn't, he wouldn't come in and people would try to make him king. And he would say, and he would stop him. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't let him do, do what they were trying to do because, uh, they misunderstood, again, this one-sided story. Now, these things about the Messiah, the Pharisees believed. Up to this point, Jesus and the Pharisees are all on the same page. They are not uh, pagans. They are not believing in a false religion. They're waiting and hoping for a Messiah who will come and be a human, a descendant of David, and will be a king, of the king of Israel. We're all on the same page now. But then Jesus says, okay, you guys got that one. Let me ask you another question. Follow up in verse 40, uh, what is it? Verse number 43. He says then, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? And then he quotes to us from Psalm 110. So you can turn to Psalm 110 and you'll see it. And it may be helpful because we're using an English Bible uh, to catch a little bit of a nuance there. So if you can turn quickly to it, let me ask you to turn to Psalm 110. And, and let's and let's see what uh, what Jesus is referring to. By the way, Psalm 110 is the most often quoted passage of Old Testament scripture uh, quoted into the New Testament. There's there's no other passage that is quoted more often in the New Testament than Psalm 110, specifically the first verse there. And notice what uh, this is. It starts off by saying it's a Psalm of David. So this is written by David, and he is writing a song, uh, a, a poem, a song that Israel would have been singing as part of their, their, their religious worship for centuries now. So they're all familiar with it. And this is the passage that Jesus quotes. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now there's a few things that we have to understand what's going on here. You may already know some of this, but if you don't, you, you totally miss what's, what's, what's happening, the, the underlying uh, message here. The Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, teaches that there is one God. There is not, there are not multiple gods. There is one true living God. We looked at Deuteronomy 6 last week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are not three gods. There are not two gods. There is one God. Uh, we read, uh, in Psalm 8, we read, uh, we sang the, we sang this verse just a few moments ago. Psalm 8, 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we speak to God, we are speaking to our Lord. Now, but I want you to look at Psalm 110 and notice the two words, Lord. The first Lord there is all capital letters. The, uh, the Lord, the all capital letters says to my Lord, and then that one has little letters. In the first one, every time we read in our English Bibles, every time we read the word Lord with all capital letters, that is the divine name of God. That is the name Yahweh. Now, in the Jewish culture, they did not speak God's name. They would not say God's name. So if you're reading a Hebrew Bible and you get to the four-letter word for God, which is, is, is in English, if we translate it, it's W, uh, I'm sorry, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. 
They do not say it. They say Adonai. Adonai means Lord. So every time we get to God's name in the Hebrew Scriptures, they don't say God's name because they wanted to treat God's name as holy and they felt that that was inappropriate. So they would say Lord or Adonai. Now when we see the other kind of the word Lord, the second word there, that is the title of God. So the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the the ruler. He is the sovereign one. He is the master. So the the first Lord, all caps, means God's name. The second Lord is the title of God, the, 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 the sovereign one who is God. So when we read in Psalm 110 that the Lord says to my Lord, it kind of sounds like there's two Lords. But the Jews know there's only one God. And if we think about what the first Lord is saying to the second Lord, He is making that second one equal with Him. Because He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. So the first Lord is all capitalized, so we know that that's God, that's Yahweh. And so Yahweh is saying to this second Lord, who is the Messiah, He is saying, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. I'm going to give you victory and I'm going to give you glory. Now, wait a minute. We believe that there's only one God, but now there's two lords. And this is what Jesus is, is, is in effect, asking these Pharisees. He's like, okay, guys, there's only one God. We all know that. Who's the son of, who, uh, Messiah is the son of who? And they say, he's the son of David. And they say, okay, then why does David call the Messiah his Lord? When he says, by the Spirit, and that's an important phrase there in Matthew 22, that this is not David's fault. This is not David's misunderstanding of Scripture. This is not David going off on his own here. This is David being inspired, being led by the Holy Spirit to say these words, the Lord said to my Lord. He said, well, how can David call the Messiah, his son, his Lord? Are there two lords? And, the, and, and, and this is the, these are the implications now of the, 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 the Messiah being David's Lord. If the Messiah is David's Lord, he is not only the son of David, he is also the son of God. Because when uh, in Isaiah 42, God himself says, I am the Lord, and that's the word Yahweh there. He says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. When we take the glory of God and we give it to anything else or anyone else, it's called idolatry. God says, I don't share my glory. But in Psalm 110.1, God Himself says to this Lord, I'm going to give you my glory. You're going to sit at my right hand. You're going to be equal. You're going to have victory. You're going to have glory. And Jesus understands what's going on, but He knows the Pharisees don't quite get all this. And He's like, okay guys, you get it, but do you? But do you really? How can David call him Lord if he is his son? How can there be two? Secondly, the implication here is that he is both human and divine. How can someone be both human and divine? Thirdly, not only is he descended from David, but he is eternally existent. He has always been. He not only came from David, but he existed before David. This doesn't make sense. How can this be? Finally, he is both the king of Israel and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is not just a human king. He is the God 
of all the universe. He is Yahweh. Now the early church Christians, the, 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 the bishops, the pastors of the early church for centuries struggled over this. How can there be one God and yet be two? Is Jesus, whom we recognize as, as, as the Son of God, is He equal with God? Or is He on a second tier? Is He, is he uh, just almost there, God? And they struggled with this. They tried to figure out how this worked. Eventually, they, they was, were able to communicate the, the, the identity and the glory of Jesus, the Son, and the Father, and of, and of the Spirit as well, by saying what we call the Trinity. The, the three in one. That they are all three uh, separate persons and yet one divine essence. They are all equally God. They are equal in glory and power and yet they are distinct in their persons. We take that for granted. We just say, yeah, Jesus is God. Uh, we we, we kind of we, we assume that. But the, the, the early church had to really work through that and, and help to understand that. Now, if Jesus hasn't confused them enough and really stumped them enough, He's not done. He's going to add to that if you go back to Matthew 22 and look what else Jesus says. So firstly, he says, okay, how then can David call him Lord? Because he is his son. Now he flips it around and he says, verse number 45, I can include the word and here to help us understand it. And if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If, if he is the, if he's the, the, the son, how can he be his Lord? But if he's his Lord, how can he be his son? Because see, in Jewish culture, the father could not be less than his son. The son could not be greater than his father. It was, it was against the culture. That's not how things worked. And, but that's what Jesus is saying here. By, by David acknowledging that the Messiah is his Lord, throws the culture into, in, in, into a confusion because he is his son. And that's not how it's supposed to be. How can the son be greater than his father? And again, Jesus does say here that David is speaking in the Spirit. So David's not saying what he wants to say. He's not coming up with his own ideas. He is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, David himself says in 2 Samuel 23, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. David understood that when he was writing Scripture, when he was writing these Psalms, when he would, when he would speak, not just in everyday talk. I'm not saying that David spoke ex cathedra, like, the, like, a, like the, 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 the people would say that the Pope speaks. But when David was writing in the Scripture, he was not saying by his wisdom. He was saying that what God spoke through him. Peter uh, acknowledges this later on as he writes about what Holy Scripture uh, means. And he writes that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when David prophesies that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool, he's not speaking by his own wisdom or his own insight. This comes from God himself. So the question that Jesus is really asking and the question that we need to consider is what did David understand that the Pharisees don't get yet? What did the shepherd king understand centuries earlier that these legal experts still haven't come, come figured out. More importantly, what does this uneducated, untitled uh, Nazarene teacher get that we don't get? How did he figure this out and I didn't figure it out? When, when I was in school, one of my greatest motivations was 
when other people would figure stuff out before me. When I was in geometry class, or when I was out, if, if certain people uh, got it ahead of me, that was like a, a, a slap in the head, like, hey, get your, get your, uh, get your mind back on this. You got to figure this out. If he got it, you can get it. If she figured it out, now you, you better figure out, you better catch up. Don't be left behind. And here these guys uh, really are, are, are coming to the realization that this Jewish carpenter with no formal training, with no titles given to him by, by the elite educational institutions of the day, has figured out what David meant, and they don't know. It really makes me wonder what they thought Psalm 110.1 actually means. It's a very popular passage, a very important passage, but I don't think that they had really any understanding. And see, the problem was this, that the Pharisees believed in a Messiah, but only a version of the Messiah. They were expecting national deliverance. They were only seeing Him from that human perspective. They were expecting physical freedom from Rome. They were expecting national deliverance from all of their enemies. They were expecting a great man, but not God Himself. In, in effect, Jesus is saying, guys, get your mind off Rome. Stop thinking about Rome. There's a greater enemy. Stop thinking about physical deliverance. Think bigger. Think bigger than this. And if we're to understand this passage, and not just gloss over it and say, well, yeah, Jesus is God. I, I wonder, we believe in Messiah, right? We believe in the Christ. The Pharisees did too, but they still didn't understand. And I wonder how many people that say, Jesus is the Christ. Really understand what that means. He said, the true Messiah, the one that the Bible speaks about, has been the same from the very beginning. But is the Messiah that the Bible talks about, the Messiah that you and I believe in? Is it the Messiah that you know? Is it the Christ that I know? So let's think about Jesus' original question. What do you think about the Christ? And I invite you to answer that question in your heart. What do you think about the Christ? Not, is he a good guy? Is he a nice guy? Who do you think Jesus is? Because that's really the most important question that anybody could ever answer. Of all the questions and answers that were asked before this, none of them mattered as much as this one right here. Who is the Messiah? Living on this side of the cross, we could say, who is Jesus? First of all, is Jesus Christ? Many people of Jewish heritage today would disagree right there and they say, no, he's not. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That he is the one that was promised, foretold all the way from Genesis through the final words of Revelation, uh, that, that, that he is the one sent from God and is God to man. Is Jesus the Christ? The Pharisees missed it because they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that he was the one. I think that most of us would say, I, I, I believe that. I think most people in churches this morning right now would say, yeah, Jesus is Christ. I think some people think that's his last name. Second question we should ask, is Jesus God? Get past the Jesus Christ. We can agree with that. Do we understand that Jesus is God? He is Yahweh. He is the one from Genesis through Revelation. There is only one God. Though that God is, is uh, manifests Himself in three persons. There is only one God. He is not second tier. He is not some man that God blessed in some way, that God kind of came and entered and made Him to become who He is. 
He was from the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created by Him. Without Him wasn't anything made. He upholds the universe by His power. Speaking of Jesus. The early church, as I mentioned, wrestled with this question. Is Jesus God? We've been going through church history for the last uh, several weeks. And if you remember, if you were following those when we talked about the big four councils of the first, of the first millennium, uh, one of the first council was the Council of Nicaea. And they were asking the question, is Jesus divine? Or is Jesus God? And the result of that council, that big gathering of, of the, br- the brightest minds to, to answer this simple question, came uh, produced what's, what we have as the Nicene Creed. You've probably read the Nicene Creed before, and it's, and it's one of the earliest confessions of faith. It starts off that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, but it, and it says then also we believe in the Lord, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is not some second tier. He's not some creation of God. He is God Himself. I think that many of us, if not all of us, would agree, yes, Jesus is not only the Messiah. He is God Himself. Thirdly, then, let me ask this, and this is where it really gets down to it. Is Jesus Lord? Do you believe that Jesus is not only Christ, but also God, and also Lord? That's the word that's used here in Psalm 110 and Matthew 22, the Lord. Not the name of God, but also the title of God, who He actually is. The Lord, the Sovereign One. And here's where I think a lot of people stumble. A lot of people who profess to be Christians, sitting in churches right now, or they went to church sometime already, don't really believe or really understand what it means Jesus is Lord. That was kind of the rallying cry of the early church. Many Christians went to their death the, at the mouth of a lion or at the, uh, at the, by the flames of a, of, a, of a burning stake because they believed that simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. Because they would not say, Caesar is Lord. Remember when we talked about paying taxes? Should we pay taxes or not? And on that Roman coin, it had the inscription that said He is the divine Son of God. And the, and the, 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 the statement that they were forced to say or die was Caesar is Lord. And yet, many Christians stood by the conviction that Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. What does that really mean? I think a lot of people think that it's okay to believe that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, but that's about it. Because if I really start to think that Jesus is Lord, that has a lot of restriction on my freedom. And being Americans, we really like our freedom. And our liberty. We want to believe in a Jesus who's there to show unconditional love and compassion. That I believe in that Jesus that shows unconditional love and compassion. We want to believe in a Jesus that provides us a way to heaven when we die. I believe in that Jesus. We want to believe that Jesus is there to give me some good advice when I need it. Sometimes we want to believe that Jesus' sole purpose is to make me happy, successful, to achieve the American dream. I think, unfortunately, what many people who profess to be Christians today really believe is in an American Jesus. 
their version of Jesus. The lordship stuff, that's a little too much. I mean, that's a little too restrictive to to, to expect Jesus to be able to be the boss of me, to really decide how I'm going to live, and to really, can he really make that kind of a requirement on me? Can he determine what I will do and what I won't do, and what I will say and what I won't say, and where I will go and where I won't go? Does he really get to make that call for me? Don't I have freedom myself? Don't I have free will to do what I want to do? See, we don't want to give up control. We like being in control. From the very beginning, we were wanting our our way. That's why Isaiah says we're like sheep. We go astray. We turn everyone to our own way. Because we don't want to go gospel. Do we understand that Jesus is the sovereign one? Not just in eternity. Now, Jesus it's not, will, it's not Jesus will be Lord, that Jesus is Lord. Sometimes people say, you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. That's not a correct statement. Because whether or not you make Him the Lord doesn't mean He gets to be Lord or not. He is the Lord. Do you recognize it? Do you understand it? Do you submit? What are the implications? Let me give you three implications of the phrase, Jesus is Lord. What are we supposed to do with that phrase? Number one, very simply, repent. That's the first thing you should do when you realize that Jesus is Lord. Uh, Kim read to us from Acts 2 when Peter picks up on Psalm 110 and he basically talks about who the Messiah is to these, this, 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 this conglomeration of Jews from all over the world. He says to them, know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. God and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. And this is a powerful sermon because when they hear it in verse number 37 of Acts 2, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You know, if, you, if a person truly understands the gospel, you don't have to convince them to do anything. When a person really gets it, they want to know, what do I need to do? When Paul was knocked off his horse, God didn't have to convince him to repent. He said, Lord, what will you have me to do? Because he recognized who he was and who God is. And Peter says this, repent. That's the first thing he says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the first thing we ought to do. And if you've not repented of your sin, the, the, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is the, is the slap in the face that you and I need to remind us that we must turn back to Him. Secondly, we must worship Jesus as Lord. That's what we've done this morning. Our worship ought to be focused, turned to Christ. And in everything we do, and if it doesn't involve Jesus, let's just not do it in church. If it doesn't involve Christ, that's not worship then. If it's, if it's putting me at the forefront, then we didn't come to church. If it's putting you at the forefront and trying to meet your needs and all about making you happy or not making you uncomfortable or making me pleased or making me feel good, then we didn't come to worship God. We came to worship me. We came to worship ourselves. That's not what Jesus as Lord means. It means that we worship Him. Not just as a man. Not just as the great example that we need to strive to live, uh, live after. Not just as a great teacher who said some pretty neat stuff sometimes that maybe, that maybe try Jesus out. We were driving from, 
uh, from a wedding yesterday and I saw a, a, a semi on the back of it. Uh, you know, when you get really close, they have those bumper stickers that say, you know, back off, whatever. And his question was, do you follow Jesus this close? Get, you know, 10 feet away or whatever, do you follow? Nope, I don't, I don't, I don't follow Jesus that close. I shouldn't, but I should. It's a good reminder. Worship Jesus as Lord. Thirdly, obey Jesus as Lord. We come this morning, we worship, we sing the songs of Jesus, sing songs to Him, sing songs about Him, we pray to Him, we sing about Him, we, 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 give our offerings to Him, we, we read about Him in the Scriptures, we, we consider. It's all about Jesus. But then when we go home, is Jesus still Lord when you leave? He is. Spoiler. But do we live that way? Is Jesus sovereign ruler over your life? Not just over your worship time on Sunday morning, but over every moment that you exist. Is your life in total submission to the authority of Christ? One, one uh, writer, pastor said this, and I, I thought this was so telling of the church today, and, and unfortunately, more often than not, it describes me too closely. He says, it's not so much in our churches that members deny the deity of Christ as that they ignore it in their lives. He says, one of the sad results of the denigrations of theology in the popular church is the tendency to lower Jesus to the status of friend and companion rather than of cosmic Lord and very God of very God. He says it's time to worship Jesus as Lord with a new depth. I think we all know Jesus is Lord, but I would encourage us to consider that, to think through that. What does that really mean? What does that call me to do? No matter the issue that you face in life, you come this morning and you say, you know, I, got, I really wish you'd have talked about marriage. I wish you really talked about family struggles or money or, or, or wish you would have talked about what we're supposed to be doing in the, with all this coronavirus stuff going on. Or I wish you would have talked something that had more to do with what's going on in our government right now or what's going on in our country with all of our race and all that stuff. You know, the one thing that fixes all of that is the truth that Jesus is Lord. If we would get that and really get it, would answer every problem we have. The Bible does not speak specifically to every problem that we're going to face in our lives. But it does tell us the answer to every problem we have in our lives, and that is that Jesus is Lord. If Jesus really is not Lord, then let's just do what we want to do. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter. He doesn't get to be our boss. But if He is Lord, that means... We're going to answer to Him for every choice that we make, every word that we say, every decision, every thought we think. We are therefore constrained to honor Him, submit to His authority. We are to live for His glory, His purpose, because He is Lord. Let me just ask you a question and finish with this. Honestly answer in your heart, is Jesus in the periphery of your life? Sunday morning, you kind of turn, give him a nod, and go back? Or is Jesus the focus of everything you do? Work, family, play, uh, anything. Is he the focus? Or is he on the periphery? One of many things that interest me. 
When I take some time for you, Jesus, be thankful that I spent some time. Aren't you glad I came to church? Now, leave me alone while I go back to my life. See you next Sunday. It's not how it is. It's not how it's supposed to be. There's an old statement that I think it was Hudson Taylor that said it. I don't know if he said it or not, for real or, or not, but he says, Many there are who fail to see that there can be but one Lord, and those who do not make God Lord of all do not make him Lord at all. Jesus is Lord, regardless if you believe it or not. But we need to live like it. We need to act like it. Now, tomorrow at work, next Thursday at our friend's house, next at the election booth, at the news, when we're watching the news, wherever we may be, when we're with our family, when we're with our, just with our private thoughts, we must live as though Jesus is Lord.